This is the Parkinson's Fight Club, a podcast dedicated to empowering and inspiring those living with Parkinson's disease. I'm your host, Jamie Bryson. We are continuing my story this time, and we are joined once again by my wife, Christy. Um, this will be the last episode where we're talking about me. I'm getting kind of tired of talking about myself, no, <laughs> if I'm not. being honest. <laughs> um, so we're, we're looking forward to and excited to have some other folks on the podcast with us. Um, excited to hear some other people's stories as well as we move forward. So last week or last episode, we uh, ended with me being at the ER and being told that I had a mass on my kidney. And so then, um, as if, you know, 2021 wasn't, um, hard enough for us as a family. Um, now we have this to deal with and, you know, we're our, we were sort of starting to settle in a little bit, um, maybe getting a little bit out of crisis mode when that happened. And it was kind of like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. I remember thinking this can't be real. This is, this is not real. Like he likes to tease me about things. A lot of times like say something completely off the wall. No, I don't do that. <laughs> yes, you do. And so I remember getting the, I think it was a text, like, you're not going to believe this. Um, what they said. And then I guess you called me. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. I think disbelief is actually literally <laughs> how you felt. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought, like, for a minute, I thought, you're not telling the truth. Like, because sometimes you like to say things that are, like, not, you know, that are, like, way too crazy to, and then come back to, like, something that, oh, no, actually, it's this. So, but uh, I kept waiting for, no, actually, it's this, and that didn't happen. <laughs> So what you're saying is I like to tell wild stories. Mm. No, I, I do. I do like to try to catch you off guard and tell you things, you but this was the, not one of those situations. To the boys too. Yeah. Oh, I love doing it to the kids. Yeah. Um, so this was not one of those situations, but I do think that even after I was like, yeah, you know, and told you what happened, I think it was still like, you didn't completely believe. And I wasn't sure, but you definitely didn't believe that what was seen on that first CT scan was actually something to worry about. You thought it was a shadow. Yeah, could it be a shadow? Like, well, I was, it, you know. And it wasn't even a full scan because um, well, it, like, yeah. cut off Yeah, because they were looking at your ribs and it just got, like, the top aspect of the kidney. And it was like, yeah. oh, there's this thing that looks like it's on the kidney. You should get, like, a full scan. Of yeah, it. like, they did. They literally didn't even get the full thing on the pic, on the just CT. To be, you saw the to top part of it. little top part. So that yeah. it just happened to be on the scan and just happened to be located in that part where they got you know, yeah. the image of when they were trying to image something else. Yeah. And then, so there was no, um, they didn't do contrast with that CT either. So it was kind of just a, a plain one. And so there was some question for sure as to exactly what we were looking at, but the radiologist in the report definitely was concerned, um, that something was there that we needed to follow up with. So, you know, I think you said in the, at the end of the last episode that you got us a, an appointment pretty quickly with the urologist and uh, we went in to see him and 
you know, he was equally concerned. And so he sent us off for another CT, this time with contrast to get a better picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that came, it took a little bit of time to get the results on that. Um, I feel like we had to kind of push to get, um, you know, feedback as to what the the outcome of that was. Well, I don't know if you remember this because you, you, you didn't go with me to the scan, but you know how after after you get a scan done or whatever, the radiologist isn't supposed to tell you anything. You know, they're sitting there looking at the scans as they're coming in and they're not the rate. They're not the person who, well, you mean the they're tech. a tech. Yeah. yeah the I'm radiology sorry. tech who the does per- it. Yeah. Right. The person who's like actually there helping you and doing the deal, doing the whole thing. Um, they're not supposed to tell you anything. So when I got done with the scan, I remember talking, she was a young girl. Um, and she was, you know, talking to me about it. And I was like, so, uh, she asked me a couple questions like, so you had a previous CT that showed something? And I said, yeah. And I said, what the radiologist who read the previous report said. And I said, they told me something like, you know, th- that if this is a, re- a really a-, a tumor, that it would light up when they do the contrasts. And so I was like, so did it light up? You know, just seeing if I could get her to answer me. And she was like, well, you know, I'm not really supposed to say anything, um, but um thank God that you fell and hurt yourself on your bike because, and like when she said that, I was like, oh my God, she's literally telling me right now that I have a a mass without telling me, you know? Yeah. And I should point out too that we found out later that these things are oftentimes incidental, what they call incidental findings where you go in for one test or procedure and they're like, oh, they find the same, especially with kidneys, you know, because you had no symptoms like at all, like no Mm-mm. pain, no anything else. Like there's no way you would have ever known that that was there if it weren't for this incidental finding. So, you know, it, it was obvious that there was something there at that point. And then we go in to talk to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you know, we don't do do biopsies in this situation because it just doesn't make any sense. A lot of times they're not accurate anyway, and it's very hard to get to, and it's pretty invasive just to get the and sample. If you're going to go in there, you so, might as well just take the whole thing. Yeah. So he said, there's a 90% chance that this is cancerous. And so, you know, my recommendation is to take it out. Take it out. Yeah. So we had like this whole discussion, take it out on the way home. And I'm like, one of us was like, oh, who was it? Like. Was it me that thought he meant take out the whole kidney or? Oh, you were definitely concerned about that, whether he I'm like, what does he mean by take? First, I thought, oh, he means take out the mass. I'm like, did he mean take out the whole kidney? (laughs) Yeah. Was that me or you? I don't remember. No, I think that was your concern. I I interpreted it as he he just wanted to take out the mass and that that did not necessarily mean I was going to have to lose my whole kidney. So I wasn't super worried about that, but I just remember your your reaction was kind of like, I don't know if we should rush into this surgery and get this done. Like, you know, it just seems like it's, it's a very invasive surgery and there's, you know, risk involved. And, and I just remember saying, look, I have to get this out of me. I'm not going to live with this inside of me. I'm not, it's not okay with me. I like, it needs to go. And you were, you were a little bit more hesitant than that. Well, I mean, just given my past experience in lots of different hospitals and working with lots of different doctors and people having different opinions and, you know, us ourselves going to one facility, no, there's no way it's Parkinson's. The next doctor you see, it's absolutely this. And, you know, getting the scan to confirm it. It's just, I'm just not one to, well, I'm a doubter anyway. So (laughs) I don't just take what people say at face value, no matter what, like 
credentials are behind your name. You know, I need more information until I can like come around to being accepting, I guess. Um, so, you know, you question all these things like, well, is he going to have to get in there and take out the whole kidney? Like, can, you know, is he the right doctor for the job? Like, how do we know his experience meets what your needs are? Like, is this guy qualified? You know, because mm. he's getting all excited about, oh, yeah, I do this major robotic surgery and we can do it right here at this, you know, non downtown type hospital. Like that's in more of a like kind of a suburban part of uh, North Dallas. And, well, should we really be doing it there? Like what, a, you know, because, you know, given my. NICU experience, like you have to be like kind of a stable baby to be in some of those outlying facilities. Whereas if you have like a major thing going on, you need to go to the big downtown facility where they have all the mm -hmm. bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have all these things going through my head, like, you know. Well, you, your mama bear comes out and, you know, you forced me to, you know, do a lot of research and make sure that this doctor was a good doctor. And, you know, so I had to sort of go and make sure that we were that we were working with the person who we should have been working with. And we got some really good recommendations from different people, um, including hospital staff that said that um, he was great. He does those surgeries all the time and and did research on the different options in terms of how the surgery is done. And we knew that robotic was the best possible approach mm, to less it. Less invasive, yes. know, better recovery time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you you're definitely you're like you're like the reins on me sometimes. Like I, I'm just like gung ho, like running into, all right, let's get this thing out. Let's get it out right now. And you're kind of like, whoa, buddy, let's make sure that this is the right situation, the right hospital, the right doctor, that um, all of that. And so you, you, you definitely, you know, make sure that we do our homework and stuff, which is really good. Which can be hard if, you know, you're out there fighting things on your own to have to deal with, you know, living out the disease or the diagnosis, like not only like the Parkinson's, but then something else. Like I know a lot of people have, you know, who have Parkinson's got COVID during that time and, you know, trying to navigate all that. So um, I would say um, find someone who can be in your corner, you yeah, know, because good, good you're that. trying to fight it on your own, you know, you might not be in the right frame of mind to make decisions that need to be made. Um, so always having, trying to find a support person, you know, whether that's a spouse or a parent or, you know, friend. Um, not that I'm like the the perfect one, but I am pretty darn good since I have a nursing background. So <laughs> No, it's definitely good. <clears throat> um, so we scheduled the surgery um, and we wanted to do it in December because you know how insurance is. I had already reached my out of pocket for the year and we didn't want to go into 2022 because that would mean that we would probably owe a lot of money and uh, we knew we wouldn't owe anything um, if we got it done in December, which was not ideal because that meant we had to do it somewhere around Christmas Literally time. Literally three days before Christmas. Yeah. So they got us in. I mean, at first they told us January and then they had an opening and it happened to be yeah, two to three days, December 22nd. And um, so that wasn't the most ideal situation. It wasn't ideal at all. Yeah. <laughs> From a family standpoint, you know, and kids and Christmas. and. But financially speaking, you know, it made sense. And we knew we needed to get it out as soon as possible. And I just wanted to move on with yeah, my life. Yeah, didn't and... want to wait at all. Like, like January, no. Just, even if cost, you know, was something not factored in. And, was... and the reality is, too, with my job, with real estate, a lot of times um, things aren't very busy in December. So... January can 
be a busier month uh, for sure. So being that I'd already planned on having some time away, you know, from work, I just thought, you know, this work, this will work out perfectly. So, but then somewhere in between the, that, when we, you know, went in and found out about the, the cancer and, or the two, the mass, I should say. And, and when I actually went and got it done, I sort of decided that it was time for me to come out of hiding. Um, because it was just a lot, it was a lot on us. And I, I just remember thinking, um, it's really stupid for you to be suffering by yourself, to be suffering alone. And so we had a conversation, you know, I'm, I'm not as private of a person as you for sure, but it just became a thing where I felt like, you know what, you know, other people might be going through the same thing I'm going through in terms of Parkinson's or whatever, some other kind of diagnosis, cancer, whatever it is. Maybe I could help some people. Maybe I could, um, you know, be an influence or an inspiration for people. So, you know, I decided somewhere around early December to just go ahead and make a public announcement on social media that I had Parkinson's and that I was going to be having surgery to remove a mass. Unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. A completely unrelated situation. And then also around that time, um, you know, I'd mentioned in the last episode that I was not happy with my doctor at the university medical center that we were going to, and he was leaving anyways. So I had to find a new doctor and I just wasn't happy with my care. And I remember talking to my therapist, um, who I will have on the show sometime soon, hopefully. Um, and she, just really encouraged me. Like she asked me the question, are you willing to travel? And I said, absolutely. Uh, she's like, are yeah. you willing to travel to find the right person, the right doctor? It's like, if you could pick any healthcare scenario, like what would your ideal choice be? And you said, well, the Mayo Clinic. Well, I, I mean, I, mean I, I took some thought. But... I knew, I, I don't, if I'm being 100% honest, I didn't know anything about the Mayo Clinic other than I knew it was a famous hospital. And um, I knew there were other ones, too, out there that were similar. But um, that was definitely the one that came to mind first for whatever reason. And I hadn't done any research into this, like in terms of how good are the, is the neurology department at Mayo Clinic. I didn't. I just knew that it was a renowned hospital and um, that hey, I went on their website and they had, an, they had an application to apply to get to go there. And so um, I just filled it out. Yeah, I mean, and I know from being in healthcare that um, their approach is different. Um, like they, a lot of places are pushing towards patient-centered care, family-centered care where, you know, the person is treated like a whole person and not just a set of symptoms, but your whole psychological, social, emotional, physical, all being combined and treating the whole person. But Mayo Clinic's really a lot about that. So I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, if they have a good neurology, I mean, I'm sure they had something, you know, at least a start to see if you could get in. Yeah. It I was mean, worth a try. At that point, I, w I was thinking I'd probably be applying to multiple places. So I, I did that application and then that was in, actually in the middle of uh, November when I did that application. And then we found out in the middle of December that I got accepted and they scheduled me an appointment for February. So, so that was kind of all going on at the same time. Um, I was excited about the, the Mayo Clinic and everything, but I needed to get past this, this surgery. So, so the day for surgery came around. Um, I know you were super scared. 
Um, I was definitely, you know, I was scared. Um, it, cancer is like a completely different animal than Parkinson's. Um, with cancer, you know, it can be deadly. I mean, it can be fatal. Um, Parkinson's is not a fatal disease. So, you know, that, that was a huge difference for me in terms of how I was dealing with that was I, I was pretty sure based on the scans that there wasn't any other cancer around it. So I felt okay about that, that it hadn't metastasized, but you know, you just, it's just, it's nerve wracking to know that there's something inside of you that is not supposed to be there. And it makes you wonder um, how bad it is and what's going to happen and all that. And then of course, going under anesthesia and having a major abdominal surgery, I mean, things go wrong sometimes and uh, with routine surgery. So yeah, it was, it was a little scary. Yeah, it was a lot scary. I mean, and I mean, the doctor seemed good, but as far as like personality wise, he was not super personable. He was such a surgeon. So, like, I mean, I can appreciate that. So that, well, he must be a really good surgeon because he doesn't have a great personality. So yeah, uh, not that there can't be surgeons with good personalities, but I'm just, I perceived him to be pretty uh, highly intelligent yeah. and um, not super <laughs> He's a great surgeon. Super and, friendly. And, but, and he knew that about himself. But, right? You know, a lot of times yeah. people think someone's a good doctor based on if they're friendly or not. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot to like, you know, entrust, you know, to go under anesthesia and trust that you're going to come out on the other side. And, you know, I mean, it's, it was a major big deal. Went through your abdomen, five like probes and mm -hmm. they have to go through top down to get to your kidney. Yep. Um, take this out and uh you know and then i'm thinking stress on the body like they've done a lot of um investigation into stress and parkinson's and how it can exacerbate symptoms and so you know physiological stress like that you know they're gonna get his medicine right and you know he takes it orally and then but you're not eating and you know it's all this whole like spectrum of things that you have to um work together between diet and exercise and medication and stuff. So if you're not eating and your body's under stress and you can't take the dosage orally, you know, like all these things, um, like, is it going to make that worse? Are you going to be shaking on the table? <laughs> you know, when they're like yeah. trying to cut this thing out and, um, yeah. So I think you were, you know, you, you were like worried that I wasn't going to make it out of the surgery. I mean, I think, cause that's just something yeah, I mean, that, that's just how I am. Yeah. I mean, I mean we're not, a kid who had a tonsillectomy and I was the same way because so, you know, I put it off for some time thinking that maybe that's not what he needed. It's always like, it's the worst case scenario. Right. Um, so I just, I take, I take inspiration from a lot of different sources or a few different main sources that I'm excited to share with you guys as, as we, you know, go along. But, um, there was one in particular that, really helped me get through that situation. I remember being in the, um, in the room that you go into before the OR where they put your IV yeah, in and yeah. the, the anesthesiologists come in and talk to you and all that stuff. And, um, the, the week of the surgery, I happened to be watching Netflix. There's, there's a, actually a, um, documentary on Netflix, um, called nothing is impossible. Um, 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible. And the guy that this is about, his name is Nims Perja, and he is just some incredible human being, like, who has 
climbed the world's tallest mountains in the shortest amount of time, 14 of them, and which include included Mount Everest and K2 and, you know, the most formidable mountains on the planet. And um, I was watching that documentary and I was super inspired by him. And I just remember this one scene where he's talking to a bunch of climbers that are about to go up Everest. And he said something to them about, you know, sometimes um, you feel like you're screwed. And he didn't use that word, but we're trying to be PC on the show. But sometimes you feel like you're screwed, but you're actually not screwed. You're only about 45% screwed. And it's funny. And I laughed at the time, but it's like, that really stuck with me. It's like, you really, I'm sitting there and I ended up talking to the anesthesiologist about that. And he was like, oh, I love that. I love, you know, I love Nims Perja. His book's coming out. And and then he, I remember him saying 45%. Like he knew, like he said that to me and I was like, whoa, yeah, you know, like that's crazy. So, so that really helped me get through. It's like, you think that things are just really, really bad, but it's like, no, it's only about 45% yeah, bad. Yeah, didn't he tell a story about how he himself had like fallen off a roof and had a shoulder injury or something? Oh, and yeah. That, yeah. He, and like, he thought like, he wasn't going to be able like to. Like be, you know, be back in practice and all that yeah. kind of stuff and how he recovered and, mm-hmm. you know, so he was like, he really... I don't know. He was like the right person. It was. It was awesome. Yeah. That really helped me a lot. So, so the surgery went well, we don't have to go into all the details of that, but, um, stayed two nights in the hospital. Everything seemed fine. Um, I guess I, I passed with flying colors and then I greatly underestimated how bad or how hard the recovery was going to be for that. So like, I literally couldn't, I, mean, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't do anything just because my abs, my, my, um, mm-hmm. my abdomen hurt so bad. It was like, it felt like somebody was ripping my abs open. Yeah. I mean, it's major trauma through all those layers. of muscle. Yeah. I mean, they literally had to cut through my abs to get to it. And, um, so, oh, so yeah, that was rough. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was sleeping was hard. Eating was sleep. hard. Moving yeah, no. was hard. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, you're in that space where you're just living like moment to moment, like night to day to, you know, to get through. And honestly, I don't, I don't remember Parkinson's really bothering me that much during that period. It was like, I mean, I was taking my meds, but, um, you know, that was taking Retari and everything, but like, you know, I don't remember having breakthrough symptoms or anything like that. I just, cause I was just so, I don't know. I don't know. My body was just. I don't know. It was it was strange, kind of, because I had anticipated that that was going to get a lot worse. Yeah. And really hard to manage both simultaneously, but um, it's like it masked itself for a little while or something, which it's like it gave me a break. It doesn't make like it doesn't make sense, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I still don't understand why that was like that, but you know, as soon as you got better. <laughs> well, be, so. You know, I'm, it's we're like a week into it, maybe. And I started getting this really bad headache and I ended up with a fever and my fever was only about ni- 99. So it wasn't like really crazy, but I'm like, my mind's going all over the place. Like what's going on? Why am I, why do I have a fever? You know, why, you know, and I'm like, oh crap. You know, I mentioned in the last episode that I have a primary immune deficiency, which means that my body doesn't fight infection like it should. So I immediately jumped to Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I have an infection. No, no, no. I, I thought I was getting an infection from the surgery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I was super, and anyway, they put me on antibiotics, I'm pretty sure, to start with um, prophylactically. But um, that was my main concern. I'm like, I got a fever. 
and I'm looking down at, and they, they didn't actually put any stitches in my incisions. It was just glue, which is something I never experienced before, but it, I mean, it worked, but there were a couple of them that looked kind of like eh, whitish, like there was some discharge and I don't, not to make you guys grossed out or whatever, but I was concerned. So we went to the doctor because um, I told him about that and he looked at everything. He said, oh, you're totally fine. And the 99 fever is probably nothing. He said, maybe he said he thought maybe it was just an upper rep- respiratory infection, or like a sinus infection or something. Yeah, I don't know. But but he had some significant bruising like on the lateral side. Yes. I knew, and I was like, this bruising doesn't look normal. Like I was getting concerned about like internal bleeding. Like my whole side was like black. I mean, it was really black, black but yeah. it was like, it seemed like it was getting worse. It's like, yeah, yeah. So it gets like, oh, yeah, that's normal. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, you just kind of brushed it off. And I was like, yeah. eh, I don't know that that's, I don't know. It didn't sit right so, at that point. But well, we go home and a couple more days go by and Christy gets sick. And Christy doesn't get sick very often. So Christy's like, oh my gosh, I think, I feel like I have the flu or something. And we were like, yeah, it was uh, like New Year's Eve, I think. Oh yeah, it was New Year's Eve, so that would have been a little over a week. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and she's like, um, I'm going to take a COVID test because we had some COVID tests at home, and I'm, t- I mean, to tell you that thing turned positive like within 30 seconds or something crazy like that, mm-hmm. like it was quick. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I have COVID, and I was like, Oh shoot, that's what's wrong with me. That's why I have, you know. Yeah. That's why I have this headache. Well, you had so it I, before. It, like it was several days before. Yeah, I got even, it before yeah. you. Yeah. And but and I was coughing and like, y'all. We didn't even think of that. Coughing with like yeah. holes in yeah. your abdomen is like Awful. the absolute worst. Like I that, that doesn't even do it justice. Like mm-hmm. it was like horrible. Mm-hmm. And um, luckily, I mean, I didn't cough a ton. I mean, I was coughing a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, I felt terrible. And I was like, man, okay, well, I guess I have COVID. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it was like, cool. So yeah, you know, first Parkinson's, then, uh, mass on my kidney, then COVID. Okay. What's yeah. next? And I think it was, this was like the Omicron period. So it wasn't like super yes. severe. It was, I'm pretty sure we had Omicron. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't know which one it was, but, um, yeah, we don't know. it just, I think we kind of had, may have had it like in 2020 early on because we went to Disney world and all yeah. came back sick. And then um, the pediatrician, I remember her saying something about, oh, yeah, the flu season has been really long this year, Cause you know, going to or started early or something and, you know, come to find out, you know, COVID emerged, you know, a couple of months after that. So I'm pretty sure we had had it before, but um, this go around was, um, you know, our first official testing with yeah. it and such. But so, guys, you know, I got over COVID and it was just off into the sunset. Everything was perfect. Everything was great. Not hardly. Except not. <laughs> so um, the next shoe to drop, I mean, I think we're running out of shoes at this point. I mean, I didn't know you could have more than two, but um, I was at home one day. I don't even know how much time had passed. Maybe another week. It was early. It was, it was like January 8th, I think. Yeah, it was definitely early January. And um <laughs> Uh, well, I went to the bathroom and my urine had blood in it and not just a little bit of blood, but a lot of blood. And, uh, we were so like, this week time is this like is about two normal. and a half weeks post procedure. So it's like, we oh yeah, it's really been a thinking while. Yeah. Close to three weeks. Um, yeah, it had been a while. And so I just, you know, it was like a Saturday night and, um, mm-hmm. I'm like, let I guess I need to call the doctor. So I call the doctor, you know, you go through their 
prompts to the, you know, on-call doctor, leave a message, all that jazz, you know? Mm-hmm. So I leave a message on there and I hang up and I'm telling you, it was a minute, maybe a minute later, my phone rang and it was him. It was my doctor, my urologist. He goes, um, you need to go to the ER like right now. <laughs> yeah. Same guy who was like, oh, don't worry about that giant bruise on your side. That's normal. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if he's concerned, it's like, and I remember I was out like, cause I felt like I needed to go out and do something. And sometimes I go do some retail therapy or something. Yeah. I just made it out. Like hadn't been going places, you know, very much. And cause had been sick and all that, but, um, you were trying to get out of the house cause you needed to get out. Yeah. yeah. I'm, one of the kids was like wanting to go to Starbucks. I had one of them with me and I'm like, well, nope, gotta go home. Dad's having a problem. So, so yeah, um, we go to the ER and, I, I mean, I could I could do a whole episode on this experience, but, um, you know, I'll just kind of briefly go through the highlights. Um, of course, the ER waiting room was full of people and we go in there and, you know, we check in and the, the lady says, you know, OK, we got to do your COVID screening. Have you been in contact with anyone who has COVID? I said, I have COVID. <laughs> she goes, oh. <laughs> no, we said something about like we had it a couple of weeks ago or something. No, sorry. Yeah, like I literally. Like a week. Yeah. yeah. Well, we had it. Yeah. Yeah, I just had it or whatever I said. And she was like, "Oh, okay," but I knew I was going to keep. I knew I would test positive. Well, I knew. I just knew I would. Because like people weren't really understanding how long you actually test positive for it. You know, I'm almost point. positive that. Um, did did you did you take the kids to the to the um. Pediatrician, yeah, we and had they tested both positive of their birthdays like two weeks are like November and December, and so I always do their you know annual checks in January. And I had taken them around that time period, and I knew it was shortly after. No, I think we knew that people were testing positive for like a month. We knew that somehow. Well, we were starting to hear, word. yeah, yeah, starting to hear that because you know the school thing was like if you test positive, you can't come back until it's like two weeks or a negative test. But then people were testing positive longer than two weeks and so then it was like five days symptom free so it was all during that time when the rules were changing and nobody knew the rules nobody was following i mean i wasn't sick i at that point i I was sick at that point i was okay but i just knew that if they tested me i would probably test positive and so i i was a little bit worried about what that might mean um, but anyway, we waited in the ER for a long time because they did my, my vitals and my vitals were totally normal. You know, like who, who actually has an internal bleed and has normal vitals? Well, I guess I do. Um, and so that, you know how they are there. It's like, oh, he's not, he, he's, he's not dying. So we're just going to let him sit out there for hours. And so then there was a shift change and I went to the new person and I was like, Hey, you know, my doctor called ahead and I've been sitting here for a while. I'm bleeding, I yeah. think. And we she had was like, call ahead seating and our reservation hasn't been called yet. And she was like, uh, <laughs> what? And so that, that nurse got me back there yeah, quickly. Like, I'm supposed to be a direct admit, yeah. you know, um, which I guess it wasn't communicated clearly. Um, but you know, they, they have been swamped for so much time and short staffed and and there was a lot of covid patients in there and um so anyway we get back there and they order a ct obviously they want to see what's going on so they do the ct and then we waited forever and ever to get somebody to tell us the results of the ct because apparently the er doctor was in a trauma and you know i was just kind of sitting there and um in the er forever and ever 
And finally, the nurse comes in and says, all right, well, you know, I'm just going to tell you what the radiologist report says. And she goes, you have a hematoma in your abdomen that's, I think, 14 centimeters is what I remember. I don't remember. It was a lot. It was huge. It was big. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, this is going to throw a monkey wrench in all of this. And we're like, what? She goes, "Um, you have COVID pneumonia. Yeah, you're... And I'm like... like Ground glass what? appearance, which is what um, COVID pneumonia looks like on, yeah. on scans. Yeah. So anyway, um, they're like, you're going to have to go to the COVID floor because you clearly have, you know, they, they also swabbed me, which was positive. But they want to take me to the COVID floor and they tell her she has to leave because, you know, the, the COVID protocols that the hospitals had. And so she was super, super mad about that. She did not want to leave me there, which I understand. And I didn't want her to leave either. But it's like, what are we going to do? How You know, we can't fight them. They're not going to let this happen. So they made her leave and they took me up to a room. And, um, yep, I was on the COVID floor and it was weird. And um, I was kind of like by myself, obviously. And the nurse was like, we don't really know what to do with you because you have COVID, but... Like your breathing is normal. You don't so don't have any symptoms. Don't need any oxygen. You can do whatever you, you know, you can. She's like, if you, if you had fine. COVID, I would make you sleep on your stomach, but you can sleep however you want. So anyways, the next day, you know, I wake up and I'm just kind of chilling. Don't really know anything at this point. Nobody well, told me anything. Well, they had said in the ER that you need to, uh, they're contacting interventional radiology. But since it's not like emergent, emergent, they're just going to come in the morning. Yes. Might be doing a procedure. Might That's be doing true. a procedure. It was, it was a Saturday night. So like, mm-hmm. they weren't, we're not going to call anybody in because you you don't need anything. It's not something it's that needs to happen It's urgent, but right not now. emergent. Yeah. yeah. So they ended up, um, you know, doing a procedure on me where they did a catheter into my uh, femoral artery and snaked it around to my um, artery in my kidney and found a leak there and they had to put, I think three, three coils. Yeah. Um, so they put these little metal coils in my, um, renal artery Yeah, to seal, off the bleed. to seal it off, which I was actually really thankful because I was like scared to death. Like, I'm not even kidding. I was scared to death that they were going to cut me open again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm just now starting to feel a little bit better from this surgery that I already had. So um, I'm like, sweet. All it is is like a small incision in my leg and, you know, it's not going to be a big recovery time. And I was like happy about that. So so the procedure, I was awake for the whole thing, by the way. That was super weird. Um, I think they gave me some Ativan or something, but I was awake for it. And um, yeah, that was weird. And then they took me back to my room. Christy got to come at some point, but it was maybe, what, an hour or two some some time had passed since they did that procedure, and I just started having the absolute worst pain that you can imagine in my kidney. I mean, it wasn't super painful before. Like, no. It was just a bleeding. I had no pain. Like, I mean, I had no kidney pain. I just had right. pain from the incisions trying to heal. Right. So I had Not this, this pain. awful, Post- awful pain. pain. Like, my back, I could feel it in my back and in my stomach. Like, it was, like, clearly my, my kidney. And um, so they had to give me like some really serious like uh, intravenous um, pain meds, a Dilaudid, I think is what they gave me. I don't remember. And like I had to, I'm like, this went on for at least 12 hours where I was just like every time it was time for another dose, I was like hitting the button. Like I need some more pain meds because it hurt. And um, I was like, why is this hurting? You know, I asked the nurse and she's like, oh, well, you just had a procedure done. Like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. Um so the doctor comes in, though, like the next day, the actual surgeon that did my original surgery, 
and he comes in and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. But like, why is this hurt so bad? He's like, oh, it's probably because part of your kidney's dying. And you're like, oh, awesome. Like, okay. <laughs> like, right. well, first off, we weren't really told that this was a potential complication. So, you know, after the fact, it's like, oh, there's a small percentage, like what, 10% of people who have this bleeding complication, but that wasn't even on the horizon for us. It's like, you know. We had no, and it wasn't on the paper that we signed, like potential risk factors when you're having the, you know, the pre-op and the, the it wasn't at yeah. all mentioned, you know. And so this just kind of came out of nowhere as far as we were concerned. And, you know, after you get out of the first week, you think, okay, well, I just got to heal and recover and everything's going to be fine. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, like. The ER doctor that night was like, okay, you're probably going to have an interventional radiologist. I remember you just being like, people showed up like, hey, we're here for your pre procedure. You're like, oh, I didn't know I was having that for sure. Like, like I, I, mean, I hadn't given consent. I haven't signed a consent. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so you always have to just like push people to get the information, you know, and like we're pushers. And so I can't even imagine people who, you know, just trust that everybody, you know, is taking the, the right care that, that you need. Yeah. But, um, well, you, like I said, you're the mama bear comes out of you and then the bulldog comes out of you too. Cause man, you, <laughs> like, if you're not happy about something, you're, you're getting in somebody's face about it. But, um, she really wanted me out of that hospital that like as soon as possible. So she sort of pushed them to, to wean me off of that medication, even though I didn't want to do that. Cause I was in so much pain. Well, first off, they were like, you know, they want to keep me another night. Yeah. Well, you couldn't, I, they were like, oh, you can't really be here this long. The visiting hours are like two hours. I'm like, well, I'm not leaving. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I did, you know, go home overnight, but, but they, they did let you stay. They, they let you stay for a long time that day. Yeah. But then the next day they wanted to keep me another day and you were like, no, we're going home. Well, because that night you kept getting IV pain meds all night. And in the morning that rounding attending was like, oh, well, you know, you got IV pain meds throughout the night. You know, you can't really go home. You know, you have no, to transition to oral medication. I'm yeah. like, you, you got IV pain meds because they didn't like do their due diligence to get you switched over. They just did the easy thing and you had that ordered and just gave it to you, you know, instead of being like, well, the best thing to do to get you out of here, you know, is to switch you over and try, you know, but this happens a lot of times at nights. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh, well, there's an attending on call. I don't want to call them to get, you know, the pain med switch to something oral. Like they leave well enough alone, which is not good for the patient, you know, because the patient needs to be home, you know, ASAP, mm -hmm. you know, not to mention how much it costs for another day in the hospital. that's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was I was not about staying another night. Yeah. Well, I mean, it all turned out really well. Um, it, I'm glad that you pushed to get me home. I said, if I have to take this IV out, I mean, I was there ripping the tape off the IV and being like, she, he's getting up to the shower. She started taking the leads off of my <laughs> abdomen and everything. And so um, that, that nurse, I, I know, poor thing, I was like kind of freaking around. I'm like, there's nothing going on here that I can't take care of at home, you know? Yeah. So you need to get those discharge orders right now. Yeah. So we got out of that. We got through that. Everything, you know, everything was fine. I mean, it took a while for all of that to clear out in terms of like the, the blood that I had coming out in my urine, but, um, it eventually went away, thankfully. And during the, during January, it was kind of like a moment where I was like, okay, I, I got to fight back. Like I got to have something to shoot for here. Like I, I got to have some goal, you know, so I had been signed up to do the 
Ironman 70.3 uh, race in Galveston, Texas um, the year before, but it was canceled. Actually, it was, I was supposed to do it in 2020 and mm-hmm. it got canceled in 2021. I deferred because of Parkinson's because I was in the middle of that whole thing. Early on, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so I'd said, you know what? I'm not deferring again. I mean, I could have probably. I could have called him and said, hey, I can't, I can't do. And this, mind you, like this is like mid-January mm-hmm. and that race is the beginning, the April. first weekend of April. And um, I'm like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not putting it off anymore. And I just went ahead and emailed him. I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I want to go ahead and do it this year. And so, you know, I got my full um, entry si- signed up and everything. And people were like, you're crazy, dude. You just had all this surgery and you just had all this and you're going to go do um, Ironman 70.3. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So um, in between there, like early February was when I had to go, we had to go to, to the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, I cannot, I cannot overstate to you guys how life-changing going to the Mayo Clinic was for me and for, for Christy, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I was still in that mode of just sort of floundering, you know, like what's next, what's going to happen. Am I going to be able to, I mean, I, I, I just still felt like I was probably going to not be able to do the things that I like to do for a long period of time. I just, you know, and I still hadn't really found a doctor that I liked the very much. And so I was just in that state where it's just like, I don't know what's next. I don't know how this is going to go. You know, just a lot of fear. I mean, I would say I had a lot of fear. I didn't have a lot of hope at that point in terms of my long-term prognosis. Um, And so... Well, there were a lot of things. And it was like, it was, I mean, hope keeps you going, but sometimes hope is hard to find, you know, and especially when you're like hit with neurodegenerative disease and, you know, doctors who don't see you and then cancer and surgery and COVID and bleeding and rehospitalization. It's like, a lot. how can all this happen? Like we hadn't even caught up mentally with all the trauma that we were going through. Um, and so I think we we're both like, just like hanging on for like, okay, well, I hope this is good, but you know, I'm not convinced. Like, yeah, I remember going to the Mayo Clinic and like trying not to get my hopes up. Right. I remember yeah. thinking, you know, this may be, this may not be our final destination. Right. You know, we may come here and then maybe next time we'll go to, you know, some other hospital. I was thinking about uh, maybe going to California to um, UCF. Uh, wait, U- University of Cal- University of California, San Francisco, UCFSF. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, because they have a really great neurology p- department there that I had heard about. But anyway, um we're all pretty new at this, you know, mm-hmm. so you're having to deal with the disease and figure out like advocacy for yourself and deal with your own trauma. And so like, there's just not, there's not words. And I think in the English, English language to even encompass how like all consuming, like your life just was going along one way and it was just, you know, you like hit, yeah. hit a major roadblock and then flew off into the ditch somewhere and you don't know how to get yourself out of it necessarily. And you just try to do the things that you know how to do and hopefully, you know, pull yourself back up. So the cool thing about Mayo is that they tell you that 
They, they want you to be there for a whole week if you're not from around there because they like want to do a bunch vacation. of vacation. Yeah, it was like, it's like a medical vacation that you you and I went on, which happened to be the very first time that we were able to go somewhere by ourselves without the kids. Super sad. Since we've been married, we got <laughs> for, to spend an entire 14 week. 14 years. Yeah, we got to spend an entire week together, just you and me. Um, obviously, we weren't on some beach sipping Mai Tais or we're gonna whatever. We're going to make up for it this year, though. Yeah, hopefully. No, I mean, yeah, we are. Um, but, you know, we we showed up and, like I said, didn't have a lot of expectations. And I met with Dr. Sabica. Um, he's my doctor at Mayo. And we sat down with him. And from, like, from like the get-go, it was like, this guy is awesome. Um you know, I felt seen immediately by him. Gets me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, to find you, we found out right away pretty much that he's like the only doctor in the United States that actually specializes in YOPD and young onset Parkinson's disease. And I had, I had no idea about this before I applied. We had no clue that he's like the world's, like the, the country's leading expert on young onset. Like, yeah. To be, you know, thought of as a different disease than late onset. Yeah. And he's got a lot of sort of, I don't know if you would call them progressive ideas, but he has some ideas about uh, YOPD that I'd never heard before. And I don't think there's a lot of, there's not anybody out there that I know of that are saying some of the things that he says about YOPD. But basically, you know, he spent two hours with us um, that first day. And he's like, a, you know, a researcher and yeah. a professor and mm -hmm. teacher. Like, this is a busy guy. Like this, I mean, he, you know, we think we're all busy in our life, but this guy is like, you know, doing, uh, writing articles and books and yeah. teaching and seeing patients and mm -hmm. like really motivated and happy to do it. Like, you know, treated us like we were something special. Yeah. Like he sat there with us and talked. I'm telling you, he talked for two hours with us. And I just remember him saying things like, you're going to die as an old man. You're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be around as, as long as you, you know, as long as anyone else that doesn't have Parkinson's and you're not, you know, and you're not like join a, the support groups. Yeah. Don't, don't join the support groups. <laughs> don't because, go to any support groups, which I thought was weird. Like, oh, we don't need support groups. Like I, I didn't really understand what he meant at first. Well, but. I, I, I kind of knew what he meant because I knew a lot of those groups were very negative. Doom and, and gloom. Yes. Yeah. Very like, um, complainers. Yeah. Just, just, just really depressing. And a lot of, a lot of times it, you know, he was saying, you're not like an older person that gets Parkinson's because you're a young onset person and Parkinson's is different for you than it is in an older person. So don't compare yourself to those people and how their disease progresses and how their disease acts because yours is completely different. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it, it, it just gave us a whole lot of hope. Um, he, they did a bunch of tests on me while we were there. Um, really didn't do much, but rule out a bunch of things. I think at this point, blood work exams, tests, you know, um, scans, yeah. pet scan. Yeah. Know. I did a pet scan, did it, did an autonomic system, um, reflex test, test yeah. on me. And, and so we got a better idea of kind of the scope of my Parkinson's while we were there, which was, which was good. Um, and then, you know, when I left there and, and we talked, I talked to him about triathlon and, and mountain biking and everything. And he was like, yeah, you can totally do all of that. He said, 
we can help you. We will support you and whatever you need. And he said, he said, look, I'm going to give you a plan um, before, you know, I'm going to give you a medication plan so that when you do that race in April, that you will be ready for that. And you'll, you'll have, you'll know what you need to do in terms of medicine to make sure you can get through that day with, uh, without having like an off time, which Parkinson's people, you know, that that's like when your medicine's not working. And so, um, we came up with a plan and, um, you know, I showed up at that race in April and I implemented that plan. I, so for those of you that don't know what a 70.3 is, it's a 1.2 mile swim. It's a 56 mile bike and a half marathon so back to back. Right. Um, so I showed up with what, six weeks of training maybe. And, um, I did it. I did that race and I ended up finishing, um, with a time that was about 15 minutes slower than the, the previous time I had at that same race, mm-hmm. which actually blew my mind, um, that I was even able to do that. But I just remember, um, I mean, I had emotions throughout the whole process of everything we bought, we went through during the course of that year, but it was like almost exactly one year later from when I got the Parkinson's diagnosis that I showed up in Galveston and did that race. And, uh, you know, I think I was probably a mile. It was probably a good mile from the finish. And I I was actually with, I was doing like some walk run kind of thing because I was, my legs were just completely dead. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was with a friend um, in the triathlon community and she was with me and we were trying to keep each other going. And I just remember all of a sudden, just, I was like a mile from the finish line and I just started crying uncontrollably. (laughs) And that's not like, I don't do that kind of stuff. No, which typically. is interesting too, because you had done full Ironmans before. I think your first one was back in 2017, and yep. you know, then you did another one in 2019. I think. Yep. Um, so it wasn't really so much about the distance, but it's the the overcoming piece. And so I just take that as it doesn't really matter what you do, just as long as you get out there and and do something to show yourself that you can, like do it because you can. Because I feel like that was like your most meaningful experience based on what he had done. I mean, not that the full, I mean, the fulls are really long, but yeah, and, and uh, definitely something to accomplish, but well, this, this think, accomplishment was something different for you. Yeah. And, and we can throw some, we can throw some pictures up on the, um, on the YouTube video for those of you watching on YouTube. Um, but I just, I was just overcome with emotion and cried at the finish line. And I remember hugging some of my friends from my tri club, um, the Frisco Tri Club shout out. Um, and uh, I was just like, man, I've been through so much. And, you know, they were all crying with me too. It was, it was, a, it was a, a really cool um, scene and they were all, you know, we're so proud of you. And I, I was trying to like describe what that emotion was for me. And I think it was just gratitude. It was just, I just was so thankful in that moment that even though I had basically been through hell, and everything that we went through in 2021, even after all of that, I was still able to do an Ironman 70.3 and finish mm-hmm. it, you know, with a time that was way faster than a lot of people, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's not like I was near the bottom, you know, like six mm-hmm. and six and a half hours is a pretty good time uh, for anyone. Um, so, you know, I was just like, wow, you know, I was just, um, it was, it was crazy. And, um, but then I was really like, man, you know, I told, I told my doctor cause told, told Dr. Savica that I was going to do that. And he's like, let me know how it goes, you know? And so I let him know. And, um, 
And it wasn't just like a, oh, let me know how that goes kind of thing, you know, that people say, like, this guy is so sincere. Like, he's so he's genuine. Cool. Yeah. Um, Like, he really wanted to know, like, please email me, you know. And you think this guy who is such a big deal, it, like, takes interest in, you know, my success and, like, not just like a little interest, like, really, you know, invested. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and he, he was like, I'm going to tell this story to our PR people. And, and so then the Mayo Clinic wanted to interview me, do, do they did a, a virtual interview and ended up posting that interview on all their socials. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was like, oh, well, this, this got so much attention that we want to do a new story. We want to get mm -hmm. with the media. And, and so there ended up being a, a new story, which you guys can find on YouTube. I have a copy of it on my Facebook, on the, um, on the Fight Club Facebook, I mean, uh, excuse me, the Fight Club YouTube channel. You can find that video there or you can just search it. Um, I don't know. I guess you would search for Sol Salina Triathlete, but you'll, you'll be able to find it. Tri triathlete with Parkinson's is probably a good search. You pr would probably find it if you did that. But What was WFAA? WFAA. Yeah, it was ABC Dallas, WFAA. Dallas, yeah, ABC affiliate. Yeah. Um, so that was awesome. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say is, um, you know, like the Mayo Clinic gave me hope. And that hope really pushed me forward and changed my outlook. And then what I was doing and what happened at that 70.3 was that like that hope got converted into belief mm. because it was like I was hoping that I was going to be okay. And, and that hope really propelled me forward. But like finishing that race and all the training that I did leading up to it, like it wasn't that's not hope anymore. Right. That's like. Now I believe I can do that because mm -hmm. I did it. Mm -hmm. And so that's huge. Um, and then, you know, during that time frame, actually, I guess if we back up back to January, I had a goal of uh, competing in the Leadville 100 mountain bike race, the race across the sky, as Colorado, they call it. Yeah. And that's something that I had been thinking about doing for years. And uh, so I was like, you know what, you know, during that time where I was like, I need to, I need, I need some goals to go after. I need something to push me, you know, and so I ended up, um, raising money for the Live Strong Foundation, mm -hmm. which is a cancer organization. Um, yeah, and cause you can't just sign up for Leadville. Like there's entries and you have to do, there's a lottery. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, you can do some other races to get an entry. Maybe you can qualify for it. Qualifier races, yeah. but, but I'm not gonna, I'm not that fast. So, well, and then you, you have know, to finish it's, like top it's not two. something that you can just be, Oh, I'm signing up for Leadville. You know, yeah. it's like, um, it's, it's a process to even get, yeah, it's hard to get chosen, into. you know? Yeah. And so I remember being like, I don't know if this is the right time, you know? So it's like, even though you have all these high moments, like you still have that self-doubt in there, like mm -hmm. creeping its head up no matter who you are and what you've been through. So you have to fight against that. To and you like, pushed me. Yeah, you're I like, remember. sign up for it. And I'm not like it. that. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah, do it. Because yeah. I told her, I was like, I can get an entry through Livestrong. She's like, do it. Oh, yeah. Because there my were only a couple spots it. left at that point, to, even through Livestrong. You're like, yeah. Like, I don't know. You got to raise money. And who's going to donate to me? I'm like, people will donate. People yeah. are going to show up for you, you know? Yeah. So... I ended up raising all the money I needed to raise in like a week. Like, yeah, it was like three days. Yeah, it was like really short. Um, so my friends are awesome. They all just chipped in family, and yeah, showed up friends, and yeah. put a bunch of money into it. So then I had that going for me. After the 70.3 was over last year, I really focused on trying to do well at that mountain bike race, which was in August. Um, so 
you know, things didn't work out as, as, as well as I wanted to at Leadville. And it, it wasn't because of Parkinson's. It was just, you know, it's a really, really, really hard race. Like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Well, yeah. And we live like uh, a lot lower. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's at altitude, like 12,000 feet and the altitude kicked my butt, but well, it's like you know, the highest, almost the highest point used to be the highest point in Colorado. I think Alma, it was the highest in court. It was the highest city in Colorado until recently, until recently. There's yeah. another one. Yeah. Alma, I think is the Yes. Answer, yeah. I think that's right. But literally like, it's like literally like we've been trying to fight like what seemed like a mountain. And then I just remember writing something about like taking on the literal mountain, like just seems so right. Um, yeah. You know, and sometimes you, you know, finish strong. Well, I started using the hashtag keep climbing yeah. because for me, I just had this visual in my head of when I got Parkinson's, when I found out I had Parkinson's that I was like, oh, I'm going to just be going downhill from here. Mm. And I thought, no. I'm going to go uphill, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, Leadville seemed like the perfect sort of um, way to, to try to go uphill because mm -hmm. it literally, uh, there's like 13,000 feet of climbing over 100 miles of mountain biking. Um, and it's it's crazy hard and it's beautiful. The mountains, I love Colorado. And we got to go to Colorado a couple times last year for me to do some training. Well, we went in June for me to train a little bit, but we'll be back. Um, it didn't work out. I didn't, I didn't end up finishing it. I think you did great. I mean, for, you did. So there's times you have to make certain time cutoffs in order to keep going because like for, I guess for safety, Yeah. if you don't make certain checkpoints at a certain time, you know, you're not going to finish in a, a reasonable amount of time. So, so I missed the time cut at mile, barely, uh, at mile 40, at the 40 mile, but, but know. it was because I had super, super bad cramps, like really bad cramps and I just, they just would not go away. And so the you know, altitude will have to be something we have to figure out in the future. You well, know, and I think I also didn't have nutrition as well figured out as I do now. So, But um, the experience was totally worth it. So here's what I'll say. I mean, ultimately, I'm still pursuing my goals. I'm still, you know, pursuing my dreams. And I do believe that my best days are ahead. It took me a while to get to that point where I really could believe that. But I believe it now. And um, I want to conclude kind of my final thoughts on all of this with, I believe that my experience in Ironman and, and just doing really difficult endurance races was very helpful for me in equipping me to deal with everything that I dealt with because... Resilience, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, I think it teach doing things like that teach you grit and resilience. And um, I think that, you know, we really have to do hard... You, We need to do hard things because if we don't, you know, we need to take the hard road when we don't necessarily have to because when, when life makes you take the hard road and you haven't been ever taking the hard roads before, then it's going to be super hard for you. So I really encourage you know, everybody, and this is kind of how we treat our kids too, is like, you have to do hard things in life because life is hard and you're going to encounter things that are really difficult and you need to do the best that you can to prepare yourself for that, you know, because grit is like a muscle. I've heard it said that way. And so, um, you know, throughout, for example, throughout an Ironman, you know, you're out there for, I was out there for 12 hours and 45 minutes, uh, in my first one. And, um, ended up with a knee injury six miles into the marathon and was in extreme pain for 20 miles, basically. But you have 
highs and lows throughout that race where there's one, there's one minute where you may be like, oh, I'm going to quit. This is awful. I can't do this. And then the next minute you're like on cloud nine, like I'm just, I'm crushing it. And it's just, you just got to know that that's how it's going to be. And that's how it is with Parkinson's. I mean, I think that's a really good um, way to say how it, how I equate my experience with uh, endurance sports and my life. It's just like, you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. I mean, that's the secret to it. And just even when you don't feel like it, even yes. when it's like not appealing or it's raining or, yep. you know, it's, it's not something that you want to do like at all. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, I have, I have problems with that. <laughs> I yeah. have problems even getting on the Peloton, but that's, you know, that's yeah. Well, everybody, I mean, that's why I feel bad for people who, um, basically are told when they get a Parkinson's diagnosis, hey, you need to be exercising when a lot of those people have never, like, well, maybe they haven't never, but at the time they're not exercising regularly. And it's like, that's a whole added thing yeah. that you have to put. Getting so, started is hard. It is. It is. So <laughs> so that pretty much wraps up my story. Um, so for future episodes, we will be talking to other Parkies or people with Parkinson's and professionals. Um, telling, just telling stories. That's what we want to do is we want to tell stories. We want to find inspiration. Um, I find inspiration from you guys, from all the, all of the Parkinson's community, people that I know, um, through social media. I mean, you guys are awesome. Um, I hope that I can inspire you guys, but you guys inspire me too. And I'm really looking forward to telling some other people's stories on here and just getting some professionals to come on and join us and talk about lifestyle stuff, mostly just, you know, how, how can we fight this disease? Like, what's the best way to do that? And so that's really what we're going to focus on. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting some of these people in and on the show. If you know anybody who you really think should be on the show, um, please let me know. Please send me a message through um, the Facebook group. You could just post in the Facebook group. Um, and then you can email me at jamie at theparkinsonsfightclub.com. And please follow me on Instagram, which you can find me on Instagram at pedals with Parkinson's at pedals with Parkinson's. Um, so hit me up some, somehow, some way, let me know, um, Hey, this is really awesome person that you really need to talk to. Would love to do that. Um, and I mean, Hey, tell me your story. I want to know your story. So, um, looking forward to connecting with you guys and looking forward to our future episodes. Um, stay tuned to find out who's going to be with me next. Thanks a lot.